This is a story of a man and a woman who lived in a beautiful garden. It's a story of a snake who tricked mankind for thousands of years. It's a story of God and his promises. It's the story of one who's coming back to crush the head of the snake. And to give us that home we once had, we might have forgotten, lost. The biggest story. Marsha is joining me. We're going to sing a duet. Just kidding. <laughs> you would love to hear that. She would be great. Um, before we get into our, our message, I want to explain something, and I'm not going to do it again. So I'm telling you, and if somebody asks you, you can tell them. Um, I've had extensive dental surgery about 10 days ago, and... Um, uh, it's because I've had problems since I've been a little kid on the mission field, genetics and other things, um, with my mouth. Actually, my mom said I've had a lot of problems with my mouth, but... Um, <laughs> so, the, uh, recently, about six months ago, I had another infection. I've had many, many infections. And the doctor came and he said, look, he said, you need full mouth restoration and you can't keep waiting. So, I had no... Uh, no option but to do it. And uh, as a result of that, I'm having a hard time um, articulating and probably will for a little while. Um, they went in, I, I, I have um, like about 20 sutures in my mouth right now. And they went in and I had to have bone added because the bone had deteriorated so much. And uh, I feel like to put marbles up here. I mean, I just feel like it's stuck up there. So when I talk, I've got that and then it's like, you know how you can't really talk well when your mouth is numb from Novocaine? So it's a combination of lots of things. So I apologize that it's hard to hear me, maybe, or understand. I hate the word S these days. Uh, but you're going to have to deal with it. I'm sorry. Uh, this past week, I was in Indonesia. I made a commitment, so I traveled there to speak on um, what it means to live a spirit-filled life. Uh, I'll show you a picture of the guys and gals, 70, from all over Asia. And um, it was kind of my, my speaking debut since uh, uh, the operation. And they didn't notice any issue. They thought it was my American ac uh, accent. <laughs> so I would appreciate that you pretend you're from Indonesia or Malaysia or Pakistan. There was a group there from Pakistan who want me to come there. I said, is it safe? <laughs> um, anyway, um, I want you to know that God is using you, Wooddale Church, in an incredible way overseas. You don't even realize it. Lives are being changed. So I don't want to talk any more about me. Now you know what's going on. And uh, what I want to do, though, Marsha offered to help read scripture for us today. Would you stand? And she's going to read Genesis 1, 1 through 13. Listen to the word of God. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it 
or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree that was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. You can be seated. I thought it would be better for Marcia to read that part about Eve than me anyway. <laughs> when you take a look at that part of the Bible that she read for you and me, it it talks to us about two, what I'll call, inseparable gulfs, infinite gulfs that exist between us and God and each other. In other words, sin has created this huge chasm between us and God and between one another. And even though we talk a lot as believers, about sin, the reality is I don't think we understand its nature and how it works. In season one, we said God created everything, and it was what? Good, right? That's how God's story begins. In season two, though, we're looking at how the story got messed up. And I want to propose this theme to you. Read it aloud with me, please. Unless you fully understand and know how to deal with the pathology and consequences of sin, you will always struggle to overcome it. I purposely chose this word pathology because sin is something you almost have to look at under the microscope and understand how, does it, how did it emerge? How does it work? What does it do to you? If you can understand that, then you can understand what we're wrestling with. And then you can appreciate what God has done for each of us. So I want to go back to the garden, and I want us to look at what I call the setting and the serpent. I didn't realize there are so many words that start with S <laughs> until this surgery, which I... Uh, anyway, 
no longer my favorite letter in the alphabet. But I want to talk about those two things. You know, in the beginning, everything was good in the garden, wasn't it? It was perfect. I mean, it, there was no snow. <laughs> it never got below 72, I'm convinced. But there was also no heat and humidity. There were no mosquitoes. There, was no, there were no deer flies. It was like Minnesota without all those things. It was a great environment. It was perfect. And then sin enters the picture, and all of a sudden, everything changes. It even affects nature. And it reminded me of this passage when I was working on this. Maybe you've read it and haven't paid attention to it, but listen to what it says in Romans 8, 19. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation itself looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Do you realize that? Nature. Nature all around us has been affected by, by sin, and it groans. You say, what's it groaning? Why is it groaning? Because that serpent made its way into the garden. And through its presence, evil was born into the heart of human beings. Now, it would be easy for us to get caught up in trying to figure out who and what the uh, serpent is. Is it a metaphor? Is it literal? What did it look like? Why is it called those things? And I, I don't want to spend time talking about that because that's not what this part of the story is about. This is, a part what, this is about what went wrong, how it's affected you and me, and what has to happen for us to be made right with God. But if you want to know, because I know you have inquiring minds, you can go to this website. We'll put it on the um, notes section of our small groups so you can go on the internet and get it if you can't copy it down. It's about a 15-minute presentation based on the work of the late scholar Michael Heiser. He just passed away. And um, it's fascinating. And it's very thought-provoking, and that will help you kind of alleviate that, that wonder, okay? I want to get back, though, and talk about what I'll call a ridiculous question. The enemy looks at Eve, Adam standing there, by the way, and in essence says, isn't it ridiculous that God would tell you, his favorite creation, that you can't have the fruit from that one tree in the middle of the garden? And what's God thinking to himself? Other Forms, uh, versions put it, indeed, did God say? And you get this idea that the enemy is mocking God. He's mocking the situation that Adam and Eve are in, and he's inviting them into this mockery. And what I want you to understand is this isn't just about what happened then. This is happening today. You and I are constantly being attacked and facing the pressure to mock or judge God. I've talked about it. Pastor Kyle has talked about it. 
The power of the enemy's lie is that he gets us to stand outside of God, look back at God, and make judgments about God. And that is a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing when we start asking the question, is God being fair? And all of us have asked that question. Is God being fair? Now, if it drives me to the word of God to understand God, that's fine. But if it creates a wedge between me and God and me and his word, and now I decide based on what I think or the culture says, if God is fair or not, that is not a good thing. Listen to what is said in Isaiah 29. How foolish can you be? He, that's God, is the potter, and he is certainly greater than you, the clay. Should the created thing say of the one who made it, he didn't make me? Does a jar ever say the potter who made me is stupid? There's a lot of insinuating going on. Some people come right out and say it today that God is stupid. There is a God. Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord. There is no other God. I have equipped you for battle, though you don't even know me. What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Why don't you think about that for a minute? We hear a lot of that today. God's ways are wrong. God's design is wrong. What he's trying to do is wrong. Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? And yet, a lot of what we hear being said and done today does exactly that. Cal alluded to this in his message last weekend. You know, there are people who call themselves leaders, believing leaders, Christian leaders, who are are saying we need to kind of rewrite, rewrite the word of God and bring it up to speed to adapt to where the culture is going. All of that is mocking God, isn't it? It's a dangerous thing when we begin to question God's fairness. Why do we do that? Why, you know, why is it we, we question God's fairness? By the way, when you think about the garden, a lot of times we think it's the action of Eve taking that fruit that brought sin into the world. It's not action, it's attitude that brought sin into the world. It's an attitude of a superiority on, on our part. We know better than God. We really know what's going on here. What drives that in our, in our lives? What drives that in our culture? What drives that in your kids and grandkids? C.S. Lewis wrote a book years ago called The Great Divorce. Anybody read that? Well, you ought to read it. It's fictional. It's very interesting reading. It's a story, and in this story, he pictures two ghosts who are talking to each other. They used to be, you know, in life, As humans, they went to college together as believers. Then in college, what happened was they lost their faith. Before they die, one comes back to faith and the other does not. So one ghost is from hell, the other ghost is from heaven. 
And all the ghosts from hell are on a tour of heaven. Now you want to read it, don't you? <laughs> and these two meet up, and they're having a talk. And the one, the one who came back to faith says this. Quote, let's be frank. We found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into it because it seemed modern and successful. At college, we started automatically writing the kinds of essays that got good marks and saying the kind of things that won applause. We were afraid of the label of fundamentalists, afraid of a breach with the spirit of the age, afraid of ridicule. Having allowed ourselves to drift, accepting every half-conscious solicitation from our desires, we reached a point where we no longer believed the faith. In the same way, a drunken man reaches a point in which he believes another glass will do him no harm. How did these two men lose their faith? The answer to the question is not because they encountered these arguments against God or against the Bible that they couldn't resolve. They lost their faith by atmosphere. They came into an atmosphere that ridiculed God and ridiculed his word, that called into question his being kind and a good God. And because they wanted to please their peers and be accepted by their peers, professors and friends, what did they do? They gave up their faith. It was more important to get along with the culture, in other words, than it was to go along with God. And that is why, that is why so many young people growing up in the church today, we know this from research, why they leave their faith. And the reality is they're not leaving their faith, they're leaving their parents' faith. They never really got grounded in a faith commitment. And what they do is they, is they go away to university or college and they hear all these other things, and they're in this pressure, and they want to conform, and so they walk away from the faith, perhaps a faith they never really had. That's why we have our AUG program here, to help make sure our students know what they believe and why they believe it. Know what you believe and believe what you know. And that's why I'm glad about our family initiative, where we really want to help our students come to grips with this. Look what it says in Psalm 1. This came to my mind, verse 1. Oh, the joy of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They're like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do, but not the wicked. They're like worthless chaff, scattered by the wind. They'll be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly. For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. You know, some people would hear me read that today, and they would say, that's not fair. God's not being fair. God isn't loving. And that leads us to what I'll call the lethal lie that brought humanity down. 
You won't die, the enemy said. Which in one way he was right. I mean, you get this idea when God says, you pick the fruit, you'll die, that immediately when she took that fruit, whatever it was, that they would have died, but they didn't. They lived a long time, actually, (laughs) before they died. Sin has its pleasure for a season. And then it catches up to us, and we all fall by the curse. We die as a result of that. You see what Satan's doing? He, in essence, is saying, look, you can't trust God. He doesn't attack God's existence. Doesn't even necessarily attack God's law. What he's dealing with here is, you know, God cannot be trusted. God is oppressive. He's a taskmaster. He has this silly rule. Don't eat from that tree or you'll die. If he's God, why is that such a big deal? It's a tree, it's fruit. If you can eat the fruit from all the other trees, why not that one? God isn't fair. God isn't good. And that translates into so much of the thinking that's out there today. I mean, if God is so loving and kind, why won't God let me sleep with him or her? You know, that person who's not my spouse of the same sex or opposite sex. Why can't I do that? We consent. We agree. No harm in that. Why is God such a prude? Why won't he let us do that? Why why does God insist that I have to use my body in a certain way? It's my body. If God is loving, why can't I use my body the way I want to use my body, treat my body, alter my body, get rid of another body in my body? What's wrong with that? Why can't I do that? Why is God so unfair? Why why does God want me to be so generous? Why does God insist I forgive? If God is so loving and God is so good, why does he allow all these terrible things in the world? God must not really be trustworthy. And that makes its way, of course, into the lives of especially young people, but a lot of us. And that's how the pathology of sin works. Now, I want you to think about this statement. Read it with me. There would be no temptation unless underneath we already believe God cannot be trusted. How many besides me uh, deal with temptation? Every day, right? Now, a day goes by that temptation does not parade itself in front of you and me. The question is this. When I start to wrestle with that temptation, I think it was Martin Luther who said, you know, it's one thing for uh, temptations to go past your mind, like birds in the air. Just don't let them nest in your hair. Don't let them nest in your head. When you and I begin wrestling with a temptation, what are we doing? We are actually questioning whether or not God can be trusted, right? If I wrestle with temptation, in essence, what I'm saying is, you know, I don't know if I can trust God who said that I shouldn't do that or be part of that. 
Now, let me be graphic and let me be real. I just read an article, this, this AM. It's easier than saying this morning, all right? <laughs> about, about young adults. An increasing number of young men are not getting married. Quite a large part of the population are not marrying. And it's interesting, the reason why is because of all the dating apps that are out there. What's happening in the dating world is it's just making it very difficult for men and women to come together because it's so idealistic. And so what are, what are guys in particular turning to? And a big part of the article is pornography. That is a huge temptation in our culture. And it's just as powerful and real in the church as it is outside the church. Do you know that by the age of 13, 67% of boys have seen at least one pornographic image? And that by 18, 90% have. It has a powerful effect on the mind and the emotions. It's a big problem in the church, by the way. It's a big problem. We're finding more and more women looking at pornography. See, why are you picking on pornography? Because it's a graphic example that you know is an issue. We don't want to talk about it. I just talked about it. And when we wrestle with pornography, in essence, what we're saying is, God, I don't know if I can trust you if I really believe that what you offer me is better than looking at this person or persons and keeping my mind pure. I don't know if I love you more than I love this. That's just one example of how the enemy works to subdue you and me. And that led to this devastating decision to take the fruit and eat it. And that brought down humanity. Now, I don't know if you ever wondered why God didn't give a better explanation. It's kind of scary to say, hope the lightning doesn't hit. But you're wondering why. I mean, all he says is, if you eat it, you will what? Are you with me? By the way, I learned something from my African friends. They'll frequently ask the church, are you with me? And everybody goes like this. Let's try it. Are you with me? I thought, that's a, that's a neat idea. We're going to start doing it. Are you with me? All right. Um, that woke you up at least. Um, God, never, God never gives an explanation. He just says, if you eat it, you'll die. I mean, in my mind, it seems like it would have helped if God had asked his angelic tech team to roll out a screen. And they said, Adam, Eve, come here a minute. I'll tell you why I don't want you to take the fruit from and then God would have gone from that tree over there in the garden. You know what I'm talking about? And they go, yep. If you do that, it's going to destroy your life. It's going to separate you from me. Imagine you can't talk to me anymore. I'm not in the garden with you. And it's going to make you fight with each other. Let me give you a, a video of you fighting with each other. Adam, you like that? Eve, you like that? I didn't think so. And by the way, Eve... It means in childbirth, it's not going to be. It's not going to be fun. Watch this lady give birth. Ooh. 
And Adam, you're going to go to work, and thorns, and weeds, and famine, and you're going to have blisters on your hand. I mean, it's not going to be fun. And by the way, here's your kids, your first two, Cain and Abel. They're going to get in a fight. Look what Cain does to Abel. <gasps> Killed him. Now, Adam and Eve, is that what you want? I don't know about you, but if I'd had that preview, I'd probably think to myself, ah, not worth it. Why didn't God do that? Why didn't God do that? Why didn't he allow them to make their decision on a cost-benefit analysis? Because they would have done it for themselves and not for him. What God wanted was for them to make their decision to honor and trust him because they loved him. They loved him as their creator. They trusted him. And that's what God wants from you and me. He just wants us to love him and trust him. He knows what he's doing. It's a challenge. Some of you are facing a temptation right now. And honestly, honestly, the big question for you is, do you love God enough to say no? Do you love God enough to trust him? To trust him. And that led to the terrible consequences Genesis 3, read it with me. My mouth's getting tired. Ready? Here we go. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Isn't that sad? Some days I look around and see what's happening in our world. And I just go, it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to have racial issues and divorce and abortion and all the stuff that's going on and wars and violence. It does not have to be that way. Why is it that way? Because of what? Because of sin. Now, I've talked enough about how it divides us and God. Let me talk a little bit, because I'm putting two messages together, how it divides you and me. How many of you are married? Let me see your hands. How many of you who are married, you can put your hands down. How many of you who are married have ever had an argument? Let me see your hands. You can put them down. How many of you had an argument already today? Let me see your hands. Yeah, it happens, doesn't it? We don't always get along. Our kids and we don't always get along. We don't always get along with our boss, our peers, our friends, our neighbors. We don't get along racially. We don't get along with other countries. We don't get along politically. And if you ask the world, what is wrong? What's causing all of this? I'll give you the top 13 answers they'll give based on research. Here it goes, ready? What's wrong with our world today? Poverty, climate change, disease, war and terrorism, pollution, animal abuse, racism, drug abuse, rape, 
violence and murder, leftism, rightism, religion. Ask the world what's wrong, and that's what they'll tell you. Go to, go to college, go to the secular university, ask them what's wrong, that's what they will tell you, something like that or some combination. Now go and ask them, well, what's the solution? And you'll hear things like tolerance. We need to be more tolerant. Subjectivity of truth. Let everybody have their own truth. More education. More government. Yuck. More economy. More technology. Ban certain kinds of energy and emissions. Limit population growth. Ban religion. Those are the kinds of things that you'll hear. Reasons and ways to stop what's wrong with the world. The problem is those are a lot of the things that are wrong in our world, and those are human attempts to fix it, but it's not really what's wrong in the world. It's not really what's wrong between me and you and you and me. One of my favorite quotes, I've used it before. I'll use it again. I'll probably use it again. Way back when the Times of London asked some well-known authors, what is wrong with the world? And they were supposed to write an essay that would be printed. One of them was a man by the name of G.K. Chesterton. He was a British Catholic philosopher and theologian. If you try to read his work, it is not easy. But boy, was his answer simple. What is wrong with the world? Dear editors, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. Nailed it, didn't he? What's wrong with the world? You are. What's wrong with the world? I am. Now, let me make it more personal. You know, these days, it's all about being vulnerable and authentic. That's what they say every preacher and pastor needs to be. I've been pretty vulnerable with you already about my mouth. Now, let me tell you about my attitude. <laughs> um, because I'm traveling more and doing a lot with training overseas uh, leaders. And by the way, TTI has gone from being a mom-and-pop ministry to one of the leading, if not the leading, church-planting overseas ministry in the world. And every minute, listen, every minute, churches are being planted. For all that's wrong in the world, there is so much good happening in the gospel. And I don't, you don't grasp this yet, but you have a significant part in that. I just go on your behalf to teach and train. But the other day I was coming back and I was at an airport and the flight got delayed and it was from a certain city back to Minneapolis. And, and you know, um, when that happens, people get grumpy. They behave in different ways. And um, I like to people watch. How many of you like to people watch? I've decided people watching is a sin. I'll tell you why. I just began to watch everybody at the gate. It was late at night. And I just thought about the way they were acting, the way they were speaking, the way they were treating each other in the situation, the way they were dressed, the way that they looked. And I thought to myself, that's what's wrong with Minneapolis. I see it all in front of me. That's what's wrong with our world. And just as I said that, God spoke to me, not in an audible voice, not with the intercom, 
but into my mind. And here's, and I wrote it down. Here's what he said. He said that my sense, that's me, Dale, my sense of self-righteousness is just as repugnant to him as anything I don't like in other people. Why don't you think about that? That's why I think people watching is a sin because you can't help but look at other people and go, mm-mm. <laughs> There's something wrong there. That's not right. And you, and you get kind of self-righteous because you start benchmarking. If he or she was like me, we wouldn't have all these problems, right? What's wrong with the world today? Me, I am, you are. And until we come to grips with that, we can't move forward. When you get in an argument with somebody, when you don't get along with someone, what goes through your mind? Who's wrong? They are wrong. What would happen in your arguments? What would happen in all of our issues if we stopped pointing the finger at others and pointed it at ourselves and said, you know, I'm the problem right now. I'm the problem in the way I'm handling what you said and done. What you said it did, it might be wrong what you did. I may not have caused it. What you're saying and doing right now might be wrong, but am I responding in the right way or am I adding fuel to the fire? That's a different sermon, but you get it, right? I'm what's wrong. So what do we do about it? We can't do anything about it. That'll be season three. What God has done about it. You say, we're going to talk more about sin? Oh, yes, next weekend. You don't want to miss it. We're going to dive into sin next weekend. We've only scratched the surface, the pathology. But I want to leave you with some hope because God did something about it, and it's found in a simple question they asked Adam and Eve after the event. Remember what it was? Did you hear, Marsha? What was the question? What does God ask? Are you with me? What does God ask? So there was a delay clap. Some of you are just catching on. It says, where are you? Say it with me. Where are you? How do you think God meant that? The way you answer that probably has a lot to do with how you grew up. Where are you? Over here. <laughs> <laughs> right. What'd you do this time? By the way, Adam Eve hid from God. You know what? When our kids were little, they did something wrong. They would hide. We'd have to go find them. And after a while, you get aggravated trying to find them because you figure out, you know, I wonder what they did. But we, you know, as adults, we don't always, we, we hide physically, but we also hide by lying. We hide by blaming. When God says, when God says, where are you? I don't think it's in an angry voice. I think it's, as Keller says, it's like in AA, it's an intervention. It's an invitation. Where are you? I want you to admit, I want you to be honest. Let's talk about what's just happened. I want to take care of you. We serve such a loving God. We serve such a loving God. Amen? He comes looking for us, not to beat us up. He comes looking for Adam and Eve and after they have their conversation, what does God do? He, he puts clothes on them because they feel vulnerable. They're naked. They're exposed. They're, they're self-conscious. And so God says, I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to give you protection from the environment and protection from each other. 
And that clothing of Adam and Eve is a picture of how God is going to clothe us in Christ. You know, the Bible talks about being clothed in Christ. Three quick things. He, first of all, he clothes us in his righteousness. Look what it says in Galatians. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Or how about this passage? Read it aloud with me, the next passage, please. I delight greatly in the Lord. I just read about this in Romans, my quiet time this morning. Do you realize that God has given you has pulled, has put over you the righteousness of his son. Isn't that wild? You stand before God totally righteous because the righteousness of Christ has been given to you and has been given to me. That's just beautiful, isn't it? If I could just see that when I look at you, If you could just see that when you look at me, because that's how God sees me, it's how I need to see myself, that would begin a transformation in our lives. Secondly, God gives us the style, the the, the clothing style of Christ. Everybody's worried about, you know, wearing the right style. I walked into a Johnson & Murphy, I think that's the name of it, store the other day, I really liked the jacket I saw there, and when I saw the price tag, I walked out. But anyway, <laughs> it's expensive to be in style these days. I see people walking around with ripped jeans, and I think they went to Goodwill, and they tell me they paid hundreds of dollars for those ripped gym jeans. It costs a lot to be in style. It costs God a lot to put you and me in style. It cost him his son. But man, the style is awesome. Let's read about the style we can wear. Read it out loud again for me. My mouth's tired. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, would you like to be seen with somebody dressed like that? Would they like to be seen with you if you're dressed like that? Of course. That's the style, folks. That's the style. Worry more about dressing like that, and you'll change lives. Last thing, all right, that is our future clothing that's coming. Read this aloud again, please, with me. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh, but it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. We got a lot to look forward to, don't we? Story is not over. We'll continue next weekend.